Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a short week, but not a quiet one for news. And news is what we talk about on This Week in the CLE, the Cleveland.com podcast discussion by the people who bring you your news, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor at Cleveland.com, and I'm with columnist Mark Namick and reporters Courtney Astolfi, Evan McDonald, and Mary Kilpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast, guys. Missing the point of our first story seems to be a hazard in discussions about it. That story is the ban on plastic bags voted into law by the Cuyahoga County Council this week. Every time this discussion comes up, seemingly, people get twisted up in the energy and water it takes to make disposable bags versus paper or multiple-use bags. But a big part of this issue is actually about our waterways in Lake Erie. Plastic bags are fouling them and harming the fish. Courtney, let's start with the specifics. What does this legislation do and when would it take effect? This legislation got tweaked. It's no longer going to take effect in October now. It's going to start January 1st of 2020, and it'll ban what they're calling single-use plastic bags, the ones we all are familiar with from stores. There are exceptions for different things like bags for pet waste, for carry-out food, a handful of different exceptions. But really, this does what similar laws in California and New York have set out to do. So what are the penalties for, for stores that violate it? The consumer affairs portion of Cuyahoga County is going to be enforcing that. There's escalating fees over time. I think on the third offense, it's up to $500. So there's not going to be really, I don't think, enforcement efforts where they're going out and looking for violations. It's going to be more of a passive when they get complaints. If they're in the stores for other reasons, they may find a violation if stores are still using them. We'll get to some roadblocks to this in a minute. But what generally was their discussion about the need for this? What are they trying to do? The discussion is 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 hugely on I, the number 320 million plastic bags are used by Cuyahoga County residents every year. was thrown out quite often in the discussion. The goal, particularly from Councilwoman Sunny Simon, who's been a main driver of this, is the effect on Lake Erie. Plastic bags get in the waterways, get out into the lake, they break down from the sun, and it puts out chemicals into our water supply. When it passed this week, she really talked about Cleveland's legacy and, and how the, the river fires gave birth to the EPA. She was just talking about how Cuyahoga has a responsibility to... To nature. To do something. Mary and Mark, you both have done reading about this and, and about the arguments um, that are kind of counterintuitive that that getting rid of the plastic bags works against some of the environmental concerns. What have you what have you been reading? So there's this one study out of the UK in 2011 that showed, uh, and I believe that this is correct, um, but one plastic bag equal would have to be, well, sorry, a paper bag would have to be used three times to negate its effect on the environment that a same, the same plastic bag would use. So it's, it's questionable whether or not paper bags are better than plastic bags, reusable bags. I think it's a much higher percentage. They would have to be used like several times in order for them to be negated, um, negate the plastic bag. But you're back to the energy and, and resources mm-hmm. needed to make them. Does what's happening in the river and especially the lake, um, it, does that make it a worthwhile investment to spend the extra money to, to on paper bags and other, other uh, alternatives just to save the waterways? Well, Cuyahoga County decide that, decided that it was worth it. Uh, I talked to Jeff Heinen, the owner of Heinen's. He is disappointed with county council's decision to ban plastic bags, not because he thinks plastic is a problem, isn't a problem, but he believes that this isn't the right, right solution. A couple of years ago, he was in favor of a fee both on paper and plastic bags at stores uh, that ultimately wasn't... Um, didn't go forward. Um, he said that moving exclusively to pla- or paper bags uh, is going to cost Heinen's $2 million extra annually, which is, you know, real money. 
Does that cost Heinen's $2 million or does it cost their customers $2 million extra dollars? I imagine they'll be passing that along. Yeah, we'll see. Okay. The, uh, the opioid crisis continues in Ohio and the region, and we saw a chilling headline on an Evan McDonald story about the number of overdose deaths during the Memorial Day weekend. Evan, how many people died, and is there a new drug mix that's causing this? Over Memorial Day weekend itself, they think at least eight people died. But in eight days from May 20th to the 27th, it could be as many as 18. So they're largely attributing this to the fact that cocaine is increasingly being seen mixed with fentanyl. And a lot of people don't know that their cocaine is going to be laced with fentanyl, which is a much more powerful, potent drug. And that is causing these overdose deaths. Why would the uh, drug dealers mix that into cocaine, risking the the death of their customers and not give them a warning? Or is it more that the people buying the cocaine know there's some fentanyl in it, they just don't realize how much? No, it's the former. The Typically, a lot of people kind of differ on this topic, but the most common refrain that I always hear on this is that they're trying to increase their customer base in heroin and fentanyl by putting this in drugs like cocaine and creating a cross customer base. Because it's so much more addictive. Once you start to use this, you're more likely to crave it and and want more. Yes. You attended a talk this week by the U.S. Surgeon General and doctors at the Cleveland Clinic that focused on this crisis. It was ended up being a very timely talk given the deaths. What did you take away from that? It was kind of a quick visit but, uh, at that particular event. So the main thing that he touched on related to the opioid crisis was naloxone. Uh, U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, one of his big issues during his time in the Trump administration has been getting a Surgeon General's uh, advisory about naloxone, which is a opioid overdose reversal drug. When someone is experiencing an overdose, you can use this nasal spray to reverse the effects of that and potentially save their life. So he has been big on pushing that and teaching people how to use it. And there's been some evidence that it's helped a lot of people here in Cuyahoga County. Yeah, pretty much. I think everybody on this podcast has dealt with the opioid crisis at some point during the last six years. Uh, we started covering this Cleveland.com when, when naloxone really wasn't available and the effort was being made to make it available. We've seen countless deaths since. Um, but naloxone deals with the backside after somebody's already overdosed. The, the county and others uh, jumped on the news of the latest crisis this week to push a method by which you can stop the overdose with test strips, very easy test strips to use that, that determine uh, fentanyl. But there's a problem in getting those into people's hands. What What is the difficulty there? A lot of people, these are still fairly new. Naloxone and Narcan, the brand name of it, have been pretty rel- readily available for several years at this point, and a lot of people are aware of them. But the fentanyl test strips are still sort of new. So they've been available at several locations in Cleveland in particular, Circle Health Services on Euclid Ave and Care Alliance Clinic on Central Ave. And officials are pushing these test trips as a way to detect if your drugs are being mixed with more powerful drugs like fentanyl. Mark, you, um, you've ridden around on occasion with the needle exchange folks who, who I think were the first to start distributing these strips um, are the drug users hesitant to to reach out for these because they're worried they'll be marked as drug users and police will come after them? Uh, a year ago, April of 2018, I traveled with the Circle Health van, which is formerly the uh, free clinic, and that the team of guys have been doing this for 20 years. They had just gotten a grant from the uh, Drug Addiction Board, Adams Board, um, to distribute these. The, the, the challenge they have, and I've watched their exchanges with the users, you know, this they know this is not going to deter them. What they're trying to do is if they test positive, do a smaller shot, try a starter. But what they were trying to do was gather data on how much out there is tainted uh, with fentanyl. So they were asking uh, the needle exchange customers to come back and report what they found in their 
you know, in, in their usage. And part of that is just to get a feel. And, and they all have to operate on the presumption that, that the drugs are tainted with fentanyl. That is one of the things that the health workers were preaching. Like, just assume this. You really need to, you know, swab uh, that spoon before you pull, meaning, uh, you know, fill your, your needle. Do, do the test strips give you an idea to the degree or is it no, simply it's just yes gonna, or no? The presence of fentanyl is, is available Again, this isn't going to likely stop someone from using. The idea was to throw up a caution. And there's other issues surrounding this as well. One of the things that the test strips need is for the drug to be mixed with water, which would ruin the drug for the user. So officials really need to convince them to to do this to to, to waste the part to of waste the a part of what they what they just bought, but. I was told by the Adams board earlier this year that they're actually trying to get these into more places. The efforts are still in the early stages, but they're looking at getting them into public restrooms, bus stops. But 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 if Mark is right that there should be a presumption that all drugs are tainted, what's the point? I mean, if 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 I walk out and figure any cocaine I get, anything I get is tainted with fentanyl and I can't tell how much, how's that going to change it? If I'm addicted, I'm going to use the drug anyway. And if it's heavily weighted with fentanyl. The health workers really were encouraging you to just go with a slower, you know, a smaller shot, do a test, see how you handle it. They know people are going to take them, but they, you know, they have kind of their lingo was, uh, you know, just if it's positive, you're going to have to slow down. I mean, that's basically what their message is. Uh, and, 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 you know, Go know that now this thing is tainted and be ready. It's interesting because we had been on a decline of deaths and, and the, the, the crisis seemed to be abating a bit. People were still dying, but, but this has rocketed right back into attention. Yeah. Heading into this year, the numbers were encouraging. Last year, about 550 people died in Cuyahoga County of drug overdoses, which is a huge number. But the year before, in 2017, 727 right. people had died. Right. But this year, the most recent numbers that the medical examiner released, they're expecting about 650 this year. Oh, so it's a big increase. So it's going back up again. And a lot of that looks like it has to do with cocaine be possibly being mixed with drugs like fentanyl. Because last year, they only had about 250 cocaine deaths. And this year, they're on track for almost 340. Wow. All right. It's been a busy week in county government, which Courtney covers. Let's start with a piece of news that broke on the eve of the holiday weekend, the announced retirement of Sheriff Cliff Pinckney. Courtney, that announcement answered a question we'd been asking repeatedly <coughs> since the U.S. Marshals Service released a devastating uh, report about the jail last year, which was how long does Pinckney survive in this job? Now we know. His last day is August 2nd. Will a new sheriff be in place by then? We'll have to see. I know that there are questions about filling personnel gaps throughout the county. I think that <laughs> yeah. I think that the jail and the sheriff's office would be a pretty difficult job to fill, but they did fill the jail administrator job, so I'm sure they'll be pursuing it. Do you think they would go back to somebody from the past? I mean, you know, you wonder, would Bob Reed come back? He he had a blemish-free time as sheriff before Armin Budish came in. Um, the, the jail was pretty much without problem back then. Is there any chance they would try and recruit him, at least temporarily? I mean, we'll have to see. They've thrown out names of past sheriffs. There's been a lot of discussion looking back at how well, essentially, they ran things compared to what's going on now. So I wouldn't be surprised if folks wanted to look back at sheriffs who have gotten us through in previous times. Were there any heir apparents in the sheriff's department that that would be like the natural choice for this? Not to, really. To me, not particularly, no. This means that the two people in line overseeing the jail will both be new because we have the new jail administrator you mentioned. When does she begin? She'll be starting June 3rd. So the new sheriff will not have had any say in the person that will be running the jail, but, but will be responsible for that person. Correct. All right, fewer and fewer people use cash anymore to pay for anything, and it appears Cuyahoga County has forgotten the precautions that are needed to ensure that cash does not disappear when people tender it for things like taxes and dog licenses. A new report by the County Inspector General found some problems. Courtney, what's the story here? Yeah, so in the Treasurer's Office related to tax lien payments, um, just kind of poor, sloppy cash handling practices. Two grand is still missing more money was missing for a period and has since been recovered. 
But what strikes me as most noteworthy in this whole discussion is the auditors, or the internal auditor's office has for several years pointed out problems with that particular office's cash handling. They have said that they've implemented some changes, but... Well, it got so bad they stopped taking cash for a while right. until until some other officials found out. Mary? Is there any indication of foul play, or is this just mismanagement? We don't really have answers on that two grand, but we, we don't know because the, the practices were not... But th- this is an office that long has been called the treasurer's office. I mean, it's kind of staggering to think that that office would forget basic rules of cash handling. It is. And, and I think it's concerned folks in years, in years past, not necessarily most recently, but when they weren't as quick as perhaps some people would have preferred in getting their protocols a little bit tighter and. Is there any word from from Armin Budish, the uh, the county executive, on this? Has he offered any statement on how this could be happening or how he intends to fix it? I haven't. Nothing. Kind of silent. All right. Well, talk about a pile of cash. Courtney also reported this week the county is looking for ways to provide $40 million for basic maintenance, maintenance of Rocket Loans Arena, formerly known as the Q, formerly known as Gund Arena. This isn't the same as the money the county and city provided to overhaul the place, right? This is just basic maintenance. What's the difference? Okay, so the Q transformation deal that went through a couple years, I mean, that was its own thing. So let's think of that in a separate category. The money that we're talking about now is for, they call it major capital repairs. It's what the county's obligated to pay for on both the ballpark and the arena, though this money doesn't have anything to do with the ballpark. Um, The county's obligated to pay for these major capital repairs. Recently, it's been things like the ice floor in in the hockey arena when it when it's hockey season. Different basic building structures. How much ice do you buy for forty million dollars? Well, that was. It's the piping. I know for for I've attended a few of those meetings, and uh, it's the very non sexy stuff. Obviously, the yeah. capital uh, improvements uh, include you know the you know the, the heating, the cooling systems. Uh, in Roof. particular, the ice has been on there. Their list for for several years. They did the roof. Uh, recently, got money for that. Um, you know, and the, the lease is this is the most basic aspect of the lease. Is is this work that's already done that they're looking to pay for, or is it future work that they have to pay for? So this is money that the Cavs already fronted because the county had yet to give them. So the Cavs fronted for these repairs. These repairs are already done or under construction or already been approved by Gateway, which is basically the lease manager for the county. So the county owes the Cavs $40 million, and they got to figure out how to pay for it. And one of the ways maybe they're going to borrow this um, and pay interest on that loan to pay back the money they already owe to the Cavs. Correct. And and one thing this doesn't really address is what happens if an unforeseeable major capital repair comes up in three years? There's not going to be money for that. This is reimbursing things that have already been done. Where does the cash come from to repay the loan they would take out to pay the money to the Cavs? Is there is there already money in the general fund for that, or are they looking to raise taxes? Well, the money for the repairs to the stadiums is supposed to come from the sin tax that voters renewed in 2014. But the thing is, is not enough money comes in from the sin tax. I think in 2018 it was about 14 mil came in from the sin tax. What what's needed or what the teams say they need as far as major capital repairs for these facilities far outpace the revenues from that tax. So this bond money is kind of an advance. Well, or, ex- or, can you expect the same kind of requests coming from the Indians for tens of millions more for their maintenance? Well, the Indians were pretty mum in this recent discussion. Uh, we have to remember that lease negotiations are coming up there, so maybe they don't want to put their hand out ahead of those negotiations, perhaps. So what you're saying is people in Cuyahoga County need to commit more sins in order to help pay for the uh, the stadium (laughs) repairs, maybe? 
We'll have to see. All right. Well, speaking of sins, after seeing the success of the Cleveland script signs in various photogenic city spots and the huge number of photos taken at them, Parma wants in. Mary, you wrote up this week this story. What's the deal there? Yeah, uh, the folks in Parma saw the Destination Cleveland signs that went up across the city ahead of the Republican National Convention in 2016. I'm sure you've seen them. Most of them overlook some beautiful view of downtown. Uh, so many photos, so many people have gone out to these signs to take pictures next to the Cleveland signs. Uh, a councilman in Parma thought this was great. He runs a charity. He started raising money to give Parma its own sign. Uh, the hope is that people will come out to Parma, maybe take a few pictures, eat at some restaurants, you know, go shop at Parma. So uh, it's Parma's new destination. One of the more interesting pictures I saw this week was a guy on top of the Parma sign surrounded by pink flamingos. Parma is often the butt of jokes. Does it risk embarrassment with this sign where lots of people are going to come out to do those kind of kind of uh, antics? Yeah, I mean, I think Parma has a has a reputation. And I, I think, you know, they they understand that sometimes uh, they're laughed at. But no, I think that they're they're really proud of the sign. They really believe that this is gonna attract some folks to come out to Parma to check it out. It's right by the splash pad at Anthony Zelinsky Park, if you're interested. Um, and uh, the hope is it will spur some economic development. So uh, it's there if you want to take a picture next to it. All right. After a break, we'll talk about the move to provide lawyers to people in poverty who face eviction. It's this week in the CLE. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. We're back on This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, and in this segment, politics editor Jane Cahoon, special projects editor Laura Johnston, and City Hall reporter Bob Higgs. Jane, Laura, and Bob, you're keeping busy this week. Any expectation that the summer doldrums will slow down the flow of news in your areas? Not this summer. Not a bit. Not a chance. (laughs) This week, a team from Legal Aid Society of Cleveland and Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly visited us to talk about how close we are to providing lawyers for people who are in poverty and facing eviction. The Legal Aid team reiterated how devastating eviction is for people in poverty because of how it interrupts school for kids, depletes their limited funds, and throws up all sorts of hurdles for them for emerging from poverty. Hazel Remish, a legal aid attorney immersed in the project, explained some of what they have learned about Cleveland evictions. First, she told us how many people who get evicted have lawyers in Cleveland. What does the landscape look like? Uh, There's 9,000 evictions that are filed every year in the city of Cleveland alone, about 20,000 countywide. Only 1-2% to of the tenants who are going into court are represented by an attorney, um, whereas 75% of landlords are showing up to court with a lawyer um, by their side. Then she told us a bit about who gets evicted. Um, they had 70%, 77% of them were African-American women. Um, 60% of the households have children, um, with the two children on average. Um, we also learned that about 38% of the people we surveyed were actually working full-time at the time of the eviction. And the median monthly income was about $1,200 a month. Finally, she told us what happened in New York when lawyers were provided to people being evicted. So New York has now been, they're facing their implementation in over five years. At the end of their first year, they've seen that um, 84% of the households who went into eviction court with a lawyer, never sorry, avoided displacement. With all of that, Council President Kelly explained that the argument for providing lawyers to those facing eviction has been made, and he's now trying to figure out how to pay for it. For reasons that have been stated, that the, you know, kind of like the, the, the moral case has been made, and that, that argument, that, that's over with. Um, and it's a question of how do we get to the end. And that is, uh, that is a math problem that's not as simple as, you know, um, number of cases times cost equals what the city's on the hook for. It's a matter of how do we put together, and anything we do in, a, in, in government, how do you put together something that's going to be sustainable um, that doesn't, you know, if, if it runs off the rails, it will be not good for future um, councils and mayors 
um, and tenants and, and our housing community. So we're looking at different things like, well, right now, legal aid um, provides services for up to 200% of federal poverty guidelines. Maybe we can't go that high to start. You know, maybe we're looking at 150, maybe we're looking at 100. Maybe we're looking at um, uh, families with children. Maybe we're looking, so we're, we're trying to plug in different formulas to come up with, you know, what is that number that is something that, that is sustainable. And, you know, spoiler alert, it is going to start limited. So, Bob, when is Kelly aiming to have the legislation ready? I think he'd like to have something over the summer. Council goes on recess June 3rd, but they'll have a couple of big summer meetings. But it's going to take a little while to pull it together because he's got to figure out how to pay for it. That could push it into early fall, but he wants to get at this pretty quickly. He was visibly uncomfortable during our discussion when when people brought up cost. Do you think that's because he has to navigate a very challenging political landscape to make this happen and worries that early talk about costs will just make it harder? I think that's a big part of it because it's we're talking about millions of dollars here potentially. And that's a hard sell to some members of council and also to some parts of the community. You've got people out there who will say, oh, they just paid their rent. They wouldn't be in this fix. But it's not that simple. That's the moral thing. But finding a way to pay for it is, is tricky because it is a lot of money. We learned a lot about the uh, the challenges for affordable housing and eviction through the project that we did on poverty called A Greater Cleveland, something Mark uh, was was involved in, um, and and the need to help people who are facing eviction. We, we even had uh, the, the guy who wrote the book about eviction uh, come to town uh, and give a, a speech at Playhouse Square about these challenges. Um, how how important do you think this would be, Mark, to changing the landscape? It's, it, it'll make a huge difference um, on two levels. One is, first, let's address that they're not looking to get people out of paying rent. What they found is that people get taken advantage of without a lawyer, so things become worse. A, a landlord will not only go for the back rent, but then will hit them for damages, you know, in the apartment so that it becomes a secondary cost and hit on them. And often when they are represented by a lawyer, when the tenant is, you realize that, okay, hey, that tenant has been complaining for months about the the, the leaky ceiling. So you can't charge them for it. That's something that was on the landlord. They just want to, you know, make it a little more balanced. And when there is a lawyer involved, this is the other big impact, they often find that a little negotiation can resolve the situation uh, for both sides. Maybe they can figure out a way to delay the payment. If there's a promise made or some money is given up front, then the landlord says, okay, you can stay. I'll get my money. I don't have to go through the cost of re-renting and, and things move forward. And, and that's the goal. The goal is not to get them out of paying what they owe. It is to make sure that they're not taking advantage of for being poor. Well, those numbers from Hazel were astounding. I mean, to go from winning a couple of percent of the time to well over more than half the time. The other thing that that they all talked about is once the landlord knows they might be up against somebody with a lawyer, they're much less likely to seek eviction because they know that the units are not really up to speed. And once once there's a lawyer from the tenant saying, hey, there was no water for a month, they what what gives that they get in trouble with the housing court. This uh, this whole study, uh, we've been following it for a couple of years uh, with the Legal Aid Society, really is about much bigger system too, right? They want to get at, if a landlord has a bad roof, um, does this trigger an inspection? Obviously, that's the stick that, that scares them. By coming into that court, then someone may go check. Uh, there's been efforts by Legal Aid Society and others to get a, a registry of landlords on the books, which is now there, and they have to begin to uh, catalog everybody that's a, uh, every property that's a that's a, a renter rentable property, and that eventually things will be better, you know, uh, better oversight and all that stuff with it. So there's there's a lot to this this program. All right, let's stick with Kevin Kelly for a minute. Bob, we thought all of our questions and browbeating had finally persuaded Kelly to hold some oversight hearings about several pressing issues. He took the ne necessary steps of scheduling them, and then he canceled them. Now we won't see this oversight, at least until the end of summer. And really, summer hasn't even begun yet. What are the two issues we're talking about? One of them has to do with a deal that would have bought the building at 1801 Superior, the former plane dealer 
publishing it. Where, where we record where we this podcast. Yes. This podcast. Um, and they were extremely excited by they, I mean, the Mayor Jackson's administration about buying this building and making it police headquarters. They said it fit everything they needed. And you could see the, the chief of police who's usually relatively reserved was smiling ear to ear when he was talking about it. And all of a sudden that deal fell through. And they've never gotten a good explanation from the administration as to just what happened. Everybody sort of heard things through the grapevine. And now I think there's enough frustration out there that between our goading of the council president and the members, they want to bring in the administration and ask them what happened. But that deal formally collapsed last October. Right. It's I been mean, months. We are way beyond the time where you would think you'd get these answers and now we're probably not going to get them till it's almost a full year later. Why? Uh, they had the hearing scheduled finally, and then they had uh, scheduling issues come up with getting the people they need to bring in. They'll need to bring in the uh, the safety director. They'll need to bring in the chief of police. They'll need to bring in some projects people from the administration. And the schedules didn't mesh, so they end up scratching it all of a sudden. But you're right. It's probably after Labor Day now. So did the administration thwart it by just saying, yeah, we're not sending our people over? Nobody's saying that. It's certainly something you wonder about because they've been, in the meantime, trying to deal with the need for a new police headquarters on the side. And occasionally you'll hear them mention that they're looking at other possibilities. And what's the other issue that they were supposed to do the oversight on? The other generally involves airport safety. And this is another one that Cleveland.com has been pushing them on because the administration has been very tight-lipped about giving complete answers about three different episodes at the airport. One involves two members of the administration bypassing security. One of them involves a guy who was completely inebriated, plowing through a gate and driving across the runways and out the other side of the airport. Without anybody noticing. Without anybody noticing for almost three hours. And then the third involved the the malware that got into the system and took down message boards and their email system for the better part of a week. And in each case, they have been less than forthcoming and – there's some frustration in city council, particularly with the one the one last October that involved the administration. Members of council have never been fully briefed on that either. And there's a certain amount of, we, we have oversight on the airport. We need you to come and tell us what happened. And they finally got to a point where they were going to call that one in too. And then I think it got backed up with other things coming up for the June 3rd meeting, the last meeting before recess. And ended up getting pushed aside. And maybe it's time to do a piece that says, here are all the unanswered questions we still have on these these two um, issues, and, and we won't have them now for, for many months. Well, city council business seems to be blocked up. Things are flowing on the Cuyahoga River. Laura, you reported this week on something that might break the uh, stalemate that is developed between people who want to park their boats in the flats and the people who want to keep the channel clear for shipping uh, what 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 happened and and then what's the future? So this was a temporary conditional waiver from the Coast Guard for Memorial Day weekend. Um, the issue there is allowed uh, some boat docking in the flats, but the the spot uh, we're talking about is from the Alley Cat North onto the uh, Norfolk Southern Bridge, which is a railroad bridge that's usually down, and uh, boaters refer to it as the Iron Curtain of the Cuyahoga River. Um, so it, it plays a big role in boats kind of lining up to get in or out of the river or the lake. Um, so this week, they allowed docking um, in that one stretch um, of the safety zone, and then they were told if there's a freighter coming through and they give notification, they have a half hour to move. And so they tried it on Memorial Day. We have a video from our live bridge cam um, at the Music Box Supper Club. And they got notification. They moved out. It worked. And then the folks from FASTAR, which is a nonprofit uh, education and marine uh, safety group, um, they moved them all back in. So it was a success. They're meeting again to see if they can do it again this summer. And it would allow boaters to dock where they want to dock, but protect um, the boats and the people from freighters. That costs some money, I presume. Who's paying for this? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, there are a lot of safety issues going on in the river this year, this 
this year, as we've, we've talked about before, uh, things like the signs, digital signs going up, uh, River Ambassador Program. And it's kind of been all of these groups coming together and doing it and then figuring it out later who's going to be in charge because they just want to get it rather than like studying it for a while and then moving. They want it. They want this to work. So, um, I think there's a lot of groups. Uh, we have a Cuyahoga River Safety Task Force meeting coming up next week. I'm sure that will be a big part of it. In other news on the waterfront, you reported people should not swim in Lake Erie this week. Why not? Well, remember that really big rain on uh, Tuesday night? So uh, a really big pipe at Edgewater Beach, which is a combined sewer overflow pipe, went off. That's the f- phrasing they use at the Northeast Ohio Sewer District. 142,000 gallons of raw sewage and water combined and went out into the beach, which uh, created obviously some poor water conditions. So they said... Stay out of the water. There's sewage in it. Um, this doesn't happen very often. Last time it happened was August uh, during the recreation system. But uh, it is bad news when you have sewage in your beach. So they canceled the first Edgewater Live this week saying that it was due to the expected storms. But might it have been because of the stench of sewage? I have not been there to smell it right now. But if there there were, that would be a problem. Uh, thousands of people go down there every Thursday night uh, for 10 weeks in the summer. And it's a big celebration of summer. So they postponed it. They're going to hopefully come up with a new date. Um, but yeah, that is kind of sad that we lost our kickoff to summer. Yeah, what you see, and I've been using the beach for decades as a as a windsurfer. So I'm, I've been down there after storms, unfortunately. And what what you're getting is what washes up on the beach is the problem, because people still incorrectly discharge personal hygiene products and things in the sewer, and when that makes its way to the lake, then it gets washed back up. That's why you see that there. That isn't somebody that left those items that came through that overflow. The good news here is, hopefully, someday soon. We will stop talking about this issue because we have been spending millions and millions of dollars to correct the problem, essentially make separate pipes that are big enough to hold it. It's part of a 25-year, $3 billion-plus issue um, that we hope will get there. And, and we'll say we are paying for it. About 35% of your sewer bill is going solely to pay off the costs of building these bigger pipes and separate pipes. And that's Project Clean Lake, which you see growing up around town. There's a big project at University Circle right now. Um, they finished the one down by the river. Um, and there's 122 combined sewer overflow points in the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District territory. Um, unfortunately, even after the $3 billion is spent, we're not going to eliminate every overflow every time. We're just going to get down to a really minuscule number. Uh, but Mark tells me that the one at Edgewater will be we will well, not have to worry about our beach that, anymore. That's right next to the beach. Right. If that one isn't fixed, then this project is a failure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's eliminate the one next to the swimmers. We talked earlier about the county's fumbling of cash payments. But we have another story that deals with cash handling. A movement is afoot to get the U.S. Postal Service in Cleveland to set up banking services, especially for people of limited means. Jane, you edited Sabrina Eaton's piece on this. How would the post office operate like a bank? Well, actually, once upon a time, the post office did uh, offer savings accounts from 1911 to 1967. Um, So there's an inspector general's report that says the post office is equipped to do this, to offer savings accounts, electronic fund transfers, um, even personal loans, which they believe with the tens of thousands of locations of post offices that they could fill a need, a financial need in urban areas and rural areas um, where banks do not have branches. The, the, would this obviate the need for the check cashing places and the other, the other forms of, um, of banking that people in poverty are forced to contend with at high interest rates? And- Ye- yes, they, they very much hope that uh, this would be an alternative to the payday loan, um, which, um, as you know, can be expensive for people. They charge exorbitant rates, even though we do have new regulations. But um, they do think that, yes, this would provide an alternative. Why Cleveland? Well, I think they are just mobilizing the the Postal Workers Union, uh, Marcy Kaptur, the congresswoman who represents part of Cleveland, and some uh, Cleveland officials and some Brook Park officials. They, They are mobilizing, and they've got a letter or a petition um, to be presented to the Postal Service saying, let's let's do this. 
All right. The uh, eternal battle over how to draw Ohio's congressional districts is in a temporary hold. We've talked a good bit about the federal lawsuit seeking to redraw the lines for the 2020 elections. A judge ordered the redrawing. The state appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, which told Ohio to stop in its tracks. What's the deal there? Well, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, granted a stay that was requested by the state. The state said, no, this would cause too much chaos. And the court didn't really elaborate on its reasons uh, for ruling but um, or for granting the stay. But uh, the big thing is that there are cases in North Carolina and Maryland that the court is going to issue a ruling on by the end of June, other gerrymandering cases. And... Um, Presumably, the Supreme Court already knows what that ruling's going to say. So, uh, you know, it's hard to read between the lines. Does their granting of this stay mean that they're going to throw out the challenges in the other states? Or does it mean they're about to come out with some specific guidelines about, you know, a blueprint for drawing fair maps? And you, and you really can't read into what they did no, for that. The it, Supreme Court? No, you cannot read into yeah, that. All right. <laughs> A, uh, a key traffic release valve in Cleveland closed this week, the part of I-490 between I-77 and East 55th Street. The first rush hour of the closure was Thursday morning. Jane, you worked with Rich Exner to set up coverage of this. What did we see? Well, I'm going to give a shout-out to Rich because apparently he thoroughly informed our readers <laughs> about this, and they all found their alternate routes, and things went pretty smoothly this morning. He and Hannah Drown were monitoring the situation, and um, people found the detours. There was a little bit of a bottleneck maybe around Harvard, a little south of um, 490 and 77, but um, we didn't see anything that was unusual for a, a rush hour. And we didn't hear people complaining about longer commutes or anything? Not so far, no. That's pretty good. Mark, one local mayor wants to see more traffic in her town. You went deep this week on efforts by the Maple Heights mayor to bring change. What did you learn? That Maple Heights is still a struggling inner-ring suburb, but the new mayor, uh, new as in end of her first term, uh, is trying to be optimistic in the face of you know declining property values, the loss of tax revenue, which is very common to inner-ring suburbs. Uh, this is a suburb that has been under state fiscal control. Uh, for several years because they failed to make some bond, pay bond payments in 2015. Uh, mayor Annette Blackwell, who's the first African-American uh, mayor in 100-year history of that city, uh, says she's confident they'll get out from under that this year. Um, but what drew me to this suburb was an observation made by a reader who contacted us and said, you know, this sit-down uh, waiter or waitress bring you a menu restaurants are just gone it's it's all fast food or maybe a you know a locally owned one where you, you could sit and eat but there's really that that idea of a diner where you could slide into a booth get a greeting maybe see some friends at, across the aisle at a table isn't there and, and that really represents this vision that the the new mayor or mayor's up for re-election now that she wants to bring back to the city she has to go elsewhere to have a breakfast what struck me is uh, she grew up in East Cleveland, and she's worried about her city now becoming. Yeah, East she Cleveland. grew up right on, actually on the Cleveland side, but uh, you know, played and, and saw life in East Cleveland, and felt not enough was done to guide that city through its tough times. And, and she made this incredible uh, observation that I hadn't heard that there's this perception among residents, and they use this term that they're becoming the next. EC2, East Cleveland 2. And she really is troubled by that. Um, there were moments uh, when we hung out that, you, you know, you can see that it, it maybe is overwhelming uh, of a problem, but she's, she's trying. She's trying to change the zoning codes there so that they can stop the proliferation of daycare centers, hair braiding shops, nail salons, which are kind of like the, they just fill in like quicksand in these you know, these little commercial districts. And her point is there's not a lot of income and economic development that comes from such places. And so we've got to have a better system in place. And and this was just a revisiting uh, of this. And I think this is the same. This is a larger story that's going on in a lot of inner rings. Part of the issue there is also the limited housing stock. Much of the housing is on the small side compared to what people 
uh, seek today. Well, How do look, you- part of flight out of any of those entering suburbs is people look for better houses and more land. So they certainly have suffered that. Uh, it was this mayor got very excited to tell me about a recent house transfer where the house sold for one hundred and twenty six thousand dollars. So like they wow. thought there's a slight uptick. This was a big deal. And uh, so they're trying. I mean, her, her expectations or her dreams aren't even that like outrageous, right? She just wants a Starbucks. She's like, I'll settle for a Starbucks. And, and so you, you've seen all of this, you know, all of that kind of retail, like go out and out now with a new Pinecrest and you just, there's got to be some infill. Well, you, you know, you got to have the dollars, right? The, the, the triple that people want is a Starbucks, uh, a Verizon store and like a Target. <laughs> and, and when you have that in community, that means, those companies say the dollars are there, right? Mm-hmm. That's not very common in, in some of these inner ring suburbs. Uh, so that may be too much of a stretch, but, you know, look, they're getting some things like a new KFC, but, you know, she really wants that, that even if it's locally owned, just come in. And it's, it's, it's a, look, it's a great thing to shoot for. And you don't, you take it for granted because I never thought about it, that there isn't a place like that for mm-hmm. her to go eat. All right, we got to take a break. When we come back, an East Side Guide for West Siders and the West Side Guide for East Siders. It's this week in the CLE. You've been reading the writers at Cleveland.com for years, and now you can engage with them on a more personal level through Project Text. For a small monthly fee, you can receive text messages from the likes of Mary Kay Cabot, Paul Hoynes, Mark Namick, Troy Smith, and many others in our newsroom. Project Text gives you a cost-effective way to support the journalism upon which you rely. Check it out at cleveland.com slash project text. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with Mark Namick, Laura Johnston, and in this segment, life and culture editor Mike Norman and our beer and wine expert Mark Bona. Welcome all. Good to be here. Laura, you oversaw a different kind of project that published this week, tapping into the expertise of Eastsiders and Westsiders to put together the perfect day for their friends across the river. You called it the guide to the other side. So let's start with the west side since you live there. I'm from the east side. What's the ideal day for me to get to know your side of the river? So I just want to point out that I had lived nine years on the east side and three years on the west side. So I, and I've lived on the south side. So I feel like I'm uniquely able to, to uh, see all sides of Cleveland here. Um, so for the West Side, we had a number of things you might know, um, like the West Side Market, um, and fun other things that are, are a little quirkier. Like, um, we, we did workouts and breakfast, lunch, and dinner. There was a lot of food <laughs> on, and, and activities on, on each side. So we talked about the, uh, Fort Hill Stairs of the Rocky River Reservation as a great place to get a workout on. Um, obviously there are metro parks on both sides of the river. Um, we had, Gordon Square as a great place to shop around. We had um, the beaches. I don't think you can argue that the West Side beaches are better at Edgewater and Huntington. Um, and landmarks. Crocker Park made our list just for, for regular shopping. The Christmas Story House, as they can't miss if you've never been there, which um, you got to see once in your life. The Memphis Kitty Park, if you've got kids. Um, and just a whole day that to look – to enjoy to see what the other wow. side has to so, offer. So when you're using Crocker Park as a highlight, it's clear that the right oh, side Pine is Crest the was east on side. The east so side let's too. talk about what you can do as an ideal day on the right side of town, the east side. So we actually had two separate guides for the east side, one that included University Circle and one without. And my viewpoint on that is most West Siders have been to University Circle museums at some point in their lives, even if it was for a field trip. So I wanted to give you some other stuff to do, like the Maltz Museum in um, in Beechwood um, and pockets like Shaker Square and, um, and Chagrin Falls for an afternoon of just walking around, looking at the waterfalls, browsing. Um, we do have Euclid Beach on there. Um, Shaker Rocks, which is a new rock climbing place in Shaker Heights, is on there. Um, and... Yeah, it's uh Tommy's a lot of institutions. I feel like the East Side has has these really well known places that have existed for a long time, like Corky and Lenny's, um, that people can just they've heard of, should just cross the bridge and get to the other side. All right. So this stuff is on uh, Cleveland.com and clearly based on her description, the much more interesting part of this is the East Side. A lot of this <laughs> involves eating and drinking, and Mike, your team published 
a side-of-the-river agnostic guide to 50 places to eat and drink in the region. It's something your team does each year. What are the highlights? Well, you know, we, we started this years ago with the critics picking the uh, the dishes and the drinks to eat uh, that there were their favorites. And we decided uh, about five years ago that it would be much more interesting if we crowdsourced this with the uh, Cleveland foodies and other notables and celebrities gives us a lot of diversity of opinion and also some surprises that you don't normally get from just critics. So it's just a really great list every year. This year, we had everybody from Michael Simon and Channing Fry picking um, uh, dishes and or drinks to, uh, you know, uh, foodies like owners of La Plaza Supermarket and uh uh, the cura- associate curator of European art at the Cleveland Museum of Art. So, you know, Michael Simon is picking the sausage sandwich at Frank's Bratwurst at the Westside Market. Channing Fry, who Mark talked to, uh, picked the grilled salmon at Ginkgo. You get a lot of, a lot of great diversity. Yeah, I would agree. I, and Laura said it best earlier. We were talking and she really picked up on the fact that pasta, this list is very <laughs> pasta heavy. Pasta and meat. And that's okay. That's a good thing. <laughs> uh, and I had, I had fun. I like the fact, I think this list has evolved and gotten a lot better in the last few years because the diverse group of people is leading to a, a diverse group of selections. Like, uh, like Mike said, Channing Fry, uh, I talked to him. I did not realize until right before he retired how much of a foodie he is. Uh, he really, really geeks out on, on, uh, on Dante, loved Ginkgo, loved a lot of selections there. Simon could choose anyone or anything and he travels all over the country and he loves his hometown and he chooses a sausage sandwich at, uh, at the West Side Market, a specific stand at the West Side Market at Frank's. And, and many others. And I thought, you know, the, the diversity of this list uh, just keeps getting better and better every year. I mean, I've been to Platform many, many times, and maybe I just didn't notice it on the menu, but I didn't realize they had a beer slushy, which uh, Corey Corco of uh, the Cleveland Museum of Art pointed out. So I'm going to have to try that. That just seems intensely interesting to me to have a beer slushy. Also, the manager of La Plaza Supermarket, which is a great taco place on the west side, actually picked a Cuban sandwich at Best Damn Tacos, a competitor down the road. So I'm going to have to try that out too. How much of this list changes every year? I think quite a bit. I really do. I mean, you see, maybe you see some of the same places stay in this year to year, but you see a lot of different dishes. I'm amazed at how many of these places I'm very, very familiar with, but the dishes I wasn't. I, I go in and I, when you go into a restaurant, I mean, there's a chance that you and your, your friend are going to order two different things. And it was amazing how many just different dishes this just, uh, this list, uh, solicits every year. I really think that's why this list is so popular because it's not about a restaurant. It's about the dish. So it's, Entrees, appetizers, desserts, drinks. There were not as many drinks this year as there have been in the past. Not sure why, beer slushies aside. But uh, you get everything from like sautéed Brussels sprouts at Felice, which, you know, who knew, uh, to like the lamb pastrami at Vault. It's just a great variety and diversity of food. Lots of good desserts on here too. Some vanilla ice cream with hot caramel sauce at Mitchell's, tiramisu at Prestige Bakery. Good, a good selection. It's got 50 things to eat and drink. In Greater Cleveland. Check it out on uh, cleveland.com. That'll do it for this episode of This Week in the CLE. Thanks to Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, Evan McDonald, Courtney Astafi, Bob Higgs, Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, Mike Norman, and Mike Bona. Check in every Thursday night or Friday morning for the latest episode. I'm Chris Quinn, and you've been listening to This Week in the CLE. Mm-hmm.